Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 42 to 47. You know, it's interesting if you all have seen um, the, uh, what is it, the American Gospel Part 2, that you would, you would know that, that there are folks that would like to remove some parts of that song uh, from their hymnals. They wanted to put it in their hymnals, but there was one phrase in there that they didn't want in there. These were some of the more liberal churches, was the wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't want anything like that. Well, what we understand and what we've been talking about for weeks and what we emphasize all the time is that the wrath of God was indeed satisfied in Christ. And it is a beautiful reminder of what great love that He has and what a great sacrifice He made on our behalf. In Acts chapter 2, again reading verses 42 to 47, we've been going over our series on the church the glorious body of Christ. We've been looking at different parts, different aspects of it. We started off with first acknowledging that Christ was the builder of the church. That it is Christ who is the one who builds it. He is the sovereign over it. He is the master over it. He is the head of the house. We are indeed a spiritual house. We are a temple, as the Scriptures tell us. But we are not able and privileged to make our own decisions on what it is that the church will do or perform or practice. For Christ is indeed the builder. He is the author. He is the one who initiates it all. He is the one who determines how His house is to be conducted. So we learned about Christ being the builder of His church. We learned as well of our status before God because of Christ Himself, that we are indeed a holy nation, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, as we found there in Peter, as Peter declared those wonderful truths taken from the Old Testament description of Israel and now applying it to the body of Christ, that you are set apart as holy in the eyes of God, that when God sees you, He is seeing the righteousness of His Son. You have been set apart by Him for His holy use. You are justified in His sight. You are indeed a priest in Christ, that you are to minister to one another. And this morning, we are looking at, since we understand that Christ is the builder of the church, since we understand our status in the eyes of God, being a holy nation and all of that, we need to understand what is our relationship to each other as the body of Christ, as the body of believers. Are we to be an island unto ourselves? You know, for some... Church is simply a place to come, sing, hear some preaching, and go home. That's it. Uh, one lady I was talking to, it's been a few years back, the particular church she was going in, or going to, she really liked going to that church because there were so many people there. She could just go and kind of disappear within the crowd, hear what she wanted to hear, and then jet out as soon as service was over. That's what she preferred. And when you have that, there are no obligations that one has to the saints. There are no responsibilities to the assembly of believers. There is no relationships being made and cultivated within the church when we have that kind of a mindset of, I just want to come to the church. I just want to hear what I want to hear. I want to sing some tunes and then I want to go home. 
That's not how Christ has set up His church. That is not at all how the church is to be conducted. The church is to be more than a gathering on Sunday or a gathering on Wednesday. It is something glorious and beautiful that we are part of. That we invest in each other's lives. This particular passage of Scripture is one of the most important texts for us in this day. It's a text that expresses to us what kind of church that God blesses. This is a church that gives us an example that we can follow to understand how did they conduct themselves as the first century church that we can know how we are to be towards one another even here in the time that we live. It expresses what a church should be. It, it expresses how we are to be one to another. What is to be within the church? And here we find this in this passage. And my prayer today is that we would indeed give our ears over to this passage of Scripture. That we would not just hear these truths and then just discard them to say, well, that's just not for me because I don't have enough time in my life to do these things. But that perhaps through this passage, through this text, that we would come to understand Wow, what, what great assemblies that we are part of. That we are part of the universal church of Christ that is made visible within the visible, that is manifest rather within the visible church. That we would want to be part, to take in part in the church, to be involved. And I'm not just talking about ministries again on the Sunday service or any of that. I'm talking about within each other's lives throughout the week. This is a text we need to give our attention to. Let us read this passage together. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the Word of the living God. Beginning verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I pray that You would do a mighty work this day within our hearts. That we would all be receptive to hear this particular passage of Scripture. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, You would apply it to our lives. And giving us the desire to carry out these things. Oh, Father, let us understand what a great privilege it is to be part of the body of Christ. To be part of the visible church, the local church. And what a blessing it is to invest in one another's lives and to be sacrificial towards one another. Father, I pray that this day You would bless the preaching of Your Word. May it accomplish all You desire. And I pray that You indeed would be the one preaching to Your people. For only You can reach the hearts of Your people. And I pray indeed you would do a mighty work within all of us. 
Father, thank You for all that You've done for us in Christ and thank You for this portion of Your Word. May You be glorified in our hearts by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this is a very fascinating account that we are reading here. <clears throat> this is giving us a description of what it is that happened after Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes in a mighty way, empowering the people of God. The people are wondering what it is that has happened. Peter stands to perform his sermon to declare these truths of God to Jews that were there, that were there collected from all over the empire. It says there were 15 different nations there of Jews. Peter preaches his sermon. He indicts the people themselves for the rejection of Christ. And the Lord moved in a mighty way and 3,000 people were saved on account of Peter's sermon. And that is indeed a sermon that we will go over when we get to the part of the worship of the church and the ordinary means of grace that God has provided the church. But Peter preaches this sermon. 3,000 people are converted. 3,000 people have genuinely committed their lives to Christ. And now we have a description of what these 3,000 people were doing. Actually, you could say 3,120 people because there was 120 in the, in, gathered with the apostles when all this occurred. You have these people then being described from verses 42 on of how they interacted with each other. What did they do for one another? What did they commit themselves to? That's very interesting, just as a side note here, that one in four verses of the book of Acts is either a sermon or a defense of the Christian faith. I believe Dr. Lawson had rightly said that this should be called, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the preaching of the Apostles. Because that is what we're finding throughout this book and the defenses of the faith that are given there. But the first thing that Luke writes concerning this particular body of believers that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. These 3,000 people that are gathered from all over the empire that had come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, for this festival, this feast that they had, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This word, this word Continually devoted is actually one word within the Greek. It's a compound word. It's prefixed with the word pros, which means toward one another or face to face. They were persevering. They were diligently attending to the things and the practices of the apostles and the things that are mentioned thereafter. They were totally committed. Committed to the apostles' teachings, which incorporates the preaching of the, of the apostles from the Old Testament, the things that were being preached by the apostles, which would compromise or comprise rather our New Testament books when they were finally written and brought into the canon of Scripture. They were devoted. This church was a doctrinal church. It was a preaching church. They loved the doctrine of the church. They loved the teaching of the apostles. They loved the preaching of the apostles. For by it. They were converted. There was no self-help teachings here. 
There was no how-to sermons here. There was no shallow teachings here. They were committed to the deep doctrinal truths by the apostles. Those things that come from the Scripture. For this is very important to any church. Because it is, as Dr. Lawson says, and any of you that have ever listened to him have heard him say that it is the pulpit that drives the church. And no church will ever rise above its pulpit. It will never rise above its teaching. For it is the preaching of the church that is the rudder that is guiding the church along. So the preaching goes, so the church goes, as he says. They were committed to these, these truths, these great truths, and they were totally devoted to them, completely devoted, wholly devoted to them. And there's a reason why, and we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But he, he emphasizes here being one mind a few verses later. That's what the Apostle Paul writes as well, being one mind in agreement. They were all in agreement on the great doctrinal teachings by the Apostles. They were all committed to the truths of the Old Testament. Not only were they committed to it, they, they desired it. They were hungry for it. They had an appetite for it. They wanted it. They wanted to know more. And the reason that we emphasize that as well, even in our day, is because we're no different than they. We ought to all have an appetite for the deep things of God. For it is when we are learning the deep things of God, the, the, the attributes of God and the redemptive work of Christ, and all of these wonderful truths that just elevate God and set Him before our eyes of faith that we may see Him in all majesty and glory. That we may see Him in all His splendor. It is then that our hearts are, are even just humbled before Him. Recognizing His holiness in view of our own sin. And then our hearts are then filled with the joy of God to say, wow, in spite of myself, You have saved me. You have rescued me. And they desire more. And I pray that all of us would desire more. That all of us would be committed to the apostles' teaching. Being hungry for the Word of God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The Scripture tells us. Not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they're devoted to fellowship. This word that is familiar to us, koinonia. <clears throat> you know, the, the great fellowship of the church occurs when there is sound doctrine within the church. The great fellowship occurs where the Word of God is preached faithfully. Then you can have real fellowship. Though you have in our day as well that people want to come together. They don't want to discuss doctrinal truths because that's divisive but they want to have some type of a superficial agreement with each other, superficial fellowship with each other. True unity is grounded in common ideas, practices, beliefs. Anything else is just superficial. They were devoted to fellowship. Because they all agreed on the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship 
of the participation and partnership, the social connection and dealings between members of the body. They were devoted to that. They enjoyed it. They longed for it. They performed it. They were fully devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were fully devoted to their participation in the gospel work that was going on, to the sharing in the lives with each other, to the giving to one another as any would have. They were devoted to fellowship. And you see that. Because these being devoted to fellowship, it says that they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them, sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Their participation in fellowship is not just, hey, how you doing? It is an agreement on performing certain acts as well, of being committed to the gospel work. And part of the gospel work is ministry. As any may have need. You have to understand something too. One, understand that this text is not teaching some type of a socialism. It's a very unique situation that is occurring here. Because you have Jews from 15 different parts of the empire that have gathered here for the feast. They hear the preaching of Peter. They're converted. And now they want to know more before they go back home. So they only come with so much supplies. And so you have those Jews that are there that are converted Christians that are then going to sell what they have or whatever it is to provide for the needs of those that are the ones travelers, the travelers who are there in the city to stay and to learn more. They did this sacrificially. They gave out of their abundance. They were committed to fellowship. And every church should be committed to the fellowship of other believers. But in order to do that, you must be invested in each other's lives. That you may know what the others have need of. Or know what struggles that each have. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now here, in this particular instance, it would be in reference to the Lord's Supper. A little bit further down, it will be in reference to going from house to house and having meals together. But here, it is referred to as the breaking of bread. This gives us a glimpse into the worship of the church. Reference to the Lord's Supper characterizes part of their worship. That as they learn more, as they were growing in their understanding of the work of Christ, as they were growing in their understanding of the God who saved them, as they were being committed to one another and understanding that all of them had the same Lord and the same Christ over them, that they were committed to the worship of God and desiring to have the Lord's Supper as a visible reminder of the sacrifice that Christ had given for them. That's what the Lord's Supper does. It is not that you just come up here, you take some juice and have a piece of bread. It is a visible reminder of the great sacrifice of God giving His only Son. The sacrifice of Christ Himself of satisfying the justice of His Father on the cross. As the Father poured out His intense wrath, Christ drank the full cup of the wrath of God that we may taste the sweetness of His salvation. 
They were committed to that worship, the worship that reminds them of the great truths of God. It puts Christ on display for all to see. His redemptive work, His finished work. They were committed not only to the breaking of bread in that way of having the Lord's Supper, they were indeed committed to the breaking of bread, going from house to house, taking meals together. They were committed to that as well. For you see that you have 3,120 people here that are now breaking up into little groups and going to each other's homes and fellowshipping and loving and, and expressing what kind of amazement that they have concerning the work of Christ. For Luke tells us that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Astonishment. Amazement. It's actually the Greek word phobos, where you get the word fear. Phobia. You know that word, fear. They kept feeling this sense of fear. Fear of the Lord. This reverential fear. This astonishment. This amazement. And what did they do when they came together? They're entering into this fellowship, this being united together surrounding these truths and are rejoicing with each other because they took their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. But gladness, exuberant joy, exceeding joy. That's what the word means. This was not just a church that, that would gather together and, and were moping around. This is a church that indeed took God seriously. Absolutely took God seriously and the worship of God seriously and yet rejoiced in their hearts and rejoiced with one another of all that God had done for them in Christ. They were committed to that. Committed to the breaking of bread. They were committed to prayer. Prayer is a vital part of your Christian life. A part of your life that cannot be ignored. It is your communion with God. That's what prayer is. As John Piper says, especially during your times of trial and, and struggle and, and suffering, that prayer is your wartime walkie-talkie. I love that. We have a great description of prayer given to us <clears throat> in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 178. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of His Spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercy. A confession of our sins and a thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. This is what comprises prayer. Prayer isn't just, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. Prayer is, Lord, how magnificent You are. Lord, how gracious You are. Lord, how merciful You are. Lord, how awesome You are. It is Your personal communion with the Creator of all things. And this privilege you have received because of Christ, because of the work of Christ, His righteousness imputed to you through faith and now bringing you into the presence of God. 
the veil has been torn from the Holy of Holies and the holy place has been made open for you that you may come boldly with confidence into the throne room of God. You say, how magnificent are you? The Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, to pray without ceasing. Continually having that communion with God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, in agreement with the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the Gospel. We pray for each other. Lifting each other up before the throne of God. And it doesn't have to be that we're only praying for each other when everything is bad. We pray for each other even when things are going good. Lord, please continue to work in the lives of such and such that they may continually grow and see Your magnificence. Let that be the prayer for all of us. That we all may grow and see the magnificence of God. The Apostle Paul also tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing. Anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, be anxious for nothing, but pray. Pray and have confidence in the Lord. Because He is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will. It is He that has control over every aspect of life. And regardless of what may come, whether good or bad, it is by the sovereign hand of God. And so we pray unto Him. We pray without ceasing. We pray for each other. And we pray rejoicing in our hearts that we have come to know Him. We have come to know Him in Christ. What you find in the Psalms, is it not? Continual prayer. Prayer for all kinds of things. Prayer because of your enemies. Prayer because of your depression. Prayer just to give thanksgiving. Prayer just to praise God. You find all of that within the Psalms. It is praying without ceasing. Because this is your privilege as a child of God to commune with God. This is a church that is saturated with the teachings of God. They love to hear teachings of God. They love to have the communion with God. They love to rejoice with the other saints before God. They're devoted to all these things. For if you read there in verse 47, as they are taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, that singleness of heart, there's no hypocrisy here. There's no deceit here. They are praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's some things to think on. Just looking at how the early church was conducting themselves. What is it that was uniting them together. Well, the Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, 
For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Or with one Spirit. Or in one Spirit. Now you have a lot of the Pentecostal charismatic churches that want to emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you have to understand something. There is no baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is only a baptism in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes no one. It is Christ Jesus, your King, your Lord, that has baptized you into the Holy Spirit. And all have experienced this if you are genuine believers. You have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. This is across the board for all. And so it is the one Spirit of God that is uniting all the people of God. If you think about the spiritual nature of the church, you talk about the universal church. The universal church is all believers from past, present, and future that make up the one church of Christ. And because of that baptism, you have been made a member of the universal church of Christ. The blessing of being within the universal church of Christ is made manifest in the visible church, the local church. So as we are here together and as we are conducting ourselves together in worship and in fellowship, we are presenting to the world what a church should be and what the church will be in eternity. The church now, even with all its imperfections, is still precious in the sight of God and we we know that. We know that by what we read before. We We have went over these things, these great truths of who we are in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, again, emphasizing these same things. Ephesians chapter 4, jump in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Emphasizing the unity of the church. The unity that we have in the Spirit. And this is why the, the bond that the people of God have is a stronger bond than any other, any other worldly bond. Because we have been united by the same Spirit of God. There are seven times in that passage there where he's saying, one, 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 one. Emphasizing that perfect unity of the people of God. You have been made one with each other. We say sometimes to ourselves and others have, have said similar things that, well, it's hard for me to talk to this person or talk to that person because we don't have the same interests or we don't have the same experiences or on and on and on we go. Well, the thing is, is that if you have somebody that is a genuine believer, that they are able to help you, to remind you of the great truths of God. Can others do it with, you know, a better, a better way, perhaps? Sure. But does that mean that all of us are incapable of doing that for one another? No. Not at all.
We all have the same Lord. We've all experienced the same salvation. We've all experienced the same regeneration of being brought from death to life, from darkness to light. We all have the same inheritance. We all have the same Bible. We have the same truths. We have the same glorious Lord. And the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. We are all together in this. It's Christian life. But not only do you see the unity within being made partakers of the same Spirit, but you also see the outworking of that as well in having the same love for each other. He says there, verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possession and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. <clears throat> all things in common. Now, this is emphasizing the love of this church. That's what's being put on display there. The love this church had for one another. They opened up and shared their possessions. They sacrificially gave for the benefit of others. It was an act of their love. A love that all of them seemed to be united in because they were of the same mind. They were in agreement with the same kind of an attitude and outlook on everything. They had the same desires. That love was being manifested. They saw others in need. And no one withheld anything for those that had need. What love existed within this church? That agape love, that act of the will love, that sacrificial love that Christ introduced us to was being made manifest. Being united in the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God changing the hearts of all the people and it being manifested in their actions. We read a passage here in 1 John that Jason has taken us through, but it is a good reminder. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning of verse 14. Here's what the Scripture says. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And that's the question. That church in that day manifesting a genuine love that they had for others. So they were invested. They were invested in each other, devoted to each other for the benefit of one another. What a church that that was to manifest such great love, to have a hunger for such great truths, to have that desire to be with each other and being committed to each other taking meals together with each other, visiting with each other, learning together, praying together, encouraging one another together. 
They manifested what a healthy church looks like. So let me present these questions to you. Are you as committed to the apostles' teaching and worship as the first century church? And do you have a sense of the amazement and, and astonishment and that sense of awe, that reverential fear of the God of your salvation as they did that motivated them to act towards each other? Are you willing to invest yourself, your family, into the lives of others within His church? And then lastly, what kind of love are you manifesting to the others within this local congregation? These are questions that we must ask ourselves. A church is only as strong as the people in it. And if we desire for God to use us, because that's part of what was happening there. Because day by day, the Lord was adding to their number. You also see the evangelistic desire of the church. The Lord is only adding to the number because people are out there declaring the gospel. That Jesus died for sinners. That yes, you are a sinner before God. You are guilty before God. That the wrath of God abides on you. But Christ calls you to repentance. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe that all that He did on your behalf, that He lived for you, that He died for you, that He rose again three days later to give you the promise of eternal life. Believing these truths and committing your life to these truths, Christ says, in these, in this act of your repentance and your true, genuine faith being displayed, you are mine. He says, come, and I will give you rest. That is what they were preaching then and the Lord was adding to their number. I pray for all of us here that we would consider these, these questions. That we would consider how we have been where we should be. But praise God that one day we will indeed do these things right. We will do these things with perfection when we stand in the presence of God. But for now we have to strive for them. We have to make great efforts for them. So instead of neglecting each other and neglecting the coming together, let us then make certain that we are investing in each other's lives and participating in each other's lives and demonstrating the genuine love for each other that Christ has for us. His prayer was, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. So let us then demonstrate these great truths and manifest them within this local congregation. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this portion of Your Word. Thank You so much that You indeed have united us together in the Spirit of God. That we are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ because Christ has died for us all in the same way. He has made us heirs and joint heirs with Him. All of us that are committed to Him genuinely. Father, I pray that if any here do not know You, and are not part of Your church, this glorious body that, Father, today will be their birthday in the kingdom of heaven, that You would remove the scales from their eyes and give them the faith that they may call upon Christ in faith, believing the Gospel, the good news, that sin has been dealt with, 
and that we can have peace with God through Him. I pray for all of us here that we would not take these truths lightly, these, these teachings lightly, but that we would seek to do them all the more and not come up with numerous excuses as to why we cannot invest in one another's lives, but indeed that we would seek to manifest these things. Holy Father, I pray, I pray so much that you would do a mighty work within our hearts and within our lives Use us to further your kingdom here on earth. Use us for your glory. May we indeed manifest what it is to be a first century church within church in all of us. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children. Amen.